The Guardian. The joy of ebooks is that great stories are just a click away. For our podcast listeners, we have a great offer on Luke Harding's book Mafia State, a menacing tale of life as a journalist in present-day Russia. I'll tell you more at the end of the show. Spare a thought for the smaller films, unlucky enough to be released this week of all weeks. The learned, low-budget documentary, the antique British classic, the subtitled Russian drama about the middle-aged couple and their extended family. They might be great, they might be good, they are all destined to be gunned down in cold blood by that ruthless, impregnable killer known as James Bond 007. Coming up on this week's show... The Russian drama about the middle-aged couple who go to war over their respective children. The documentary about the conspiracy theories surrounding Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror film The Shining. And the antique 40s classic about skeletons in the closet in the East End of London. But we begin with the small matter of Skyfall, the 23rd official James Bond adventure, directed by Sam Mendes and sending 007 clean over the waterfall and back into his past. It's his most dangerous mission to date. I don't think he's going to make it. I won't miss next time, Mr. Silver. Not bad. Not bad, James, for a physical wreck. Daniel Craig is back as Bond, tangling with cyber terrorists in Istanbul and Shanghai and locking antlers with the imperious M, played by Judi Dench. That villain in the shadows is Javier Bardem, co-starring as preening Raul Silva, who subjects our hero to the sort of sexual harassment he himself has been dishing out for years. I do hope that wasn't for me. <laughs> but that is... Joining me now is the Guardian Films editor, Catherine Shord, and Guardian film critic, Peter Bradshaw. Peter, I guess the obvious first question uh, is, what's Daniel Craig got that you ain't got? He's got a lot of money, apart from everything else, as well as good looks and charisma. Uh, but apart from those things, what he has got, I think, is that ruggedness, uh, not very prettiness, which I think works very well. And you've got that. I've got that, yes. Well, I've got the first half of that. <laughs> and I've got the Sean Connery pate as well. Uh, I, I really like this. I love Skyfall. I thought it was uh, terrifically enjoyable and entertaining. It had a kind of sense of occasion, which I like about James Bond films. Mm. Uh, it was done, it's very smart, it's stylishly made. I think Sam Mendes has cranked up the IQ factor of, of Skyfall. I think what it's done also is it dialed down the absurdity, uh, and I think that always totally undermines James Bond. If, it, if, it just, it just, if it's just a little bit too absurd, mm. if it has, has, as it were, an invisible car, which has now become the touchstone of Bond absurdity from Die Another Day, if, it, if there's too much invisible car, then everything collapses. But, but it just, I think, gets it just right between absurdity and over the top and a sort of realism. I mean, however absurd that is to talk about realism. It has a, a script that seems to, to riff off the recent WikiLeaks furore as well, doesn't it? Yes, a little bit. As I say, that's something which I don't quite get from... Uh, other people have been talking about WikiLeaks and how contemporary it is and how satirical it is. I think, no, it has a, a kind of second or third cousin relationship with these things. Basically, it could have been made in 1978. 
to be quite honest with you, in terms of its, uh, in terms of its uh, relevance, I mean, that could have been, that, you know, the idea of a, a disc with, with agents on, that could have come at any time in the last 50 years. But yes, it has a kind of approximately uh, modern vibe. Catherine, um, Peter was talking about the sense of occasion that surrounds the, the James Bond films. Is that a sense of occasion that, that's passed you by in the past, or are you a signed-up, fully-endorsed member of the fan club? No, I, I, basically I can't bear Bond. I think we were talking about it um, a while ago when we had our favourite Bond series and I tried to, <laughs> tried to find a favourite and, and couldn't. Um, they sort of bore the life out of me. And yet, watching this, you know, never bored, never bored. And yet, after watching it, and never bored, can't remember. Bored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bored thinking about it, strangely. Um, I mean, it is, it is jolly good. And, you know, Javier Bardem is good. And I think a lot of the WikiLeaks thing is just because of his hair, um, which is a bit Assange. Ah, yes. ah, <laughs> something like that, you know, just... Ah. The only thing I would say, I, I, the only thing I regret, I mean, I, I know how Catherine feels. The only thing I regret about James Bond, and I always have, is that it ne a Bond film never has anything approaching what I understand as a plot. That is to say, A leading to B, B leading to C, D, blah, 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 and then maybe looping back in before the end. It, it's never in my lifetime had really anything like that. He's had a series of, I find, very enjoyable and intense scenes and moments and performances yeah. and taglines, which could almost be reshuffled and presented in any order. I'm always interested in how he ditches each Bond girl. I always think there yes. must be a, a scene like between the end of one Bond film and the yes. start of the next where he has this break always, up conversation. He's always chucked her. Yeah. <laughs> he's always been a complete bastard, but comes up smiling at the end mm. and you never know about them. The hunt for a plot in Skyfall was actually the weakest aspect of it for me, in that I liked it when it was pure set pieces and I thought it, yeah. it came out of the gates incredibly well. Fantastic pre-credit scene in, in Istanbul. Yeah, that was a um, some wonderful stuff. bits in yeah. there, but actually the final act I found sentimental and self-regarding. I didn't find it sentimental. I thought it was big and broad. I quite liked it. Again, everything about Bond is always a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and this emotional or sentimental ending was sort of more of the same for me. So I couldn't really take it seriously as a sentimental moment, despite the fact it has Albert Finney in it, who yeah. is, a, and that's a very sentimental thing to happen. What I thought was great, uh, what I thought was a, a terrific idea, was building on a kind of emotional or even Oedipal relationship with M. I thought, what a, mm. what a funny idea. I'd never really thought of that before. But that's, you know, that's obvious. That's been staring me in the face, a kind of emotional, difficult relationship. Now she's that, now the, that she's the a Bond woman, girl she in this, is really. Bond, she is the greatest Bond girl of all. She's absolutely great. She has this control over him and her emotional power over her double O agents in a way accounts for the potency of the villain. Raoul Silver played uh, terrifically well by Javier Bardem. Catherine, having then struggled to come up with a favourite Bond film ahead of Skyfall, is this now your favourite Bond film? Of course, by far. I mean, I, lo I loved it. <laughs> in the moment. It's almost as good as Madagascar 3. <laughs> Not quite. Go that far. I've been waiting to see who would redeem the chip. You made such a bold entrance into a little drama. Did I overcomplicate the plot? Who doesn't appreciate the occasional twists, Mr. Bond. James Bond. James Bond in Skyfall there. Now, Peter was telling us that From Russia With Love remains his all-time favourite Bond film, which leads us neatly, although via a terribly tortuous DJ-style link, to our next movie, Elena, a film that comes from Russia, but not with much love. Mom, did you talk to Sashka? No, I'm not talking to you. Why are you talking to us? We just need to know if we have these money or not. 
Скажи, почему я должен содержать семью твоего сына? Лена, я живу с тобой, не с твоими родственниками. Elena is the stealthy, impressive tale of a working-class nurse who marries her wealthy patient and then falls in love with his money. She has a feckless son from a previous marriage. He has a spoilt daughter from a previous marriage. And wouldn't you know it, there's only so much cash to go around. Peter, Elena is uh, the third film from the Russian director Andrei Svagintsev, uh, who gave us The Return about 10 years ago, which I remember yes. was great. Uh, yeah, a wonderful film. Uh, and then he gave us a film which is very interesting called The Banishment, which was good, slightly less great. I got the impression that maybe he'd been uh, maybe reading his own publicity a bit about what a very, very Russian and Tarkovskian director mm. he was. And I think he slightly drank the Kool-Aid and gave us something which was a little bit OTT on the mysterious Russianness. Now he's given us a much more intimate movie, much more contemporary and realist, and I think it's a belter. It really is good, uh, and I, I have a certain personal investment in it, in that when it was a can uh, one year ago, two years ago, I, I was on a, a jury which gave it an award. Mm. Uh, we, I just thought it was terrifically good. It's absolutely gripping. It's an incredibly unblinking, cold-eyed film where one of the main characters says that we're all bad seeds yes and there's a sense of just they're all grasping for money well yes but I find what is interesting about it is it's it's more complex and subtle than that would imply money is very very important and it's a very Russian film about money some of it it's about I don't want to give it away but some there's a will involved uh, and it sometimes looks like a rather old-fashioned piece of Russian literature it looks very Dostoevskian or Tolstoyan in some ways in that it's about extended families uh, and the responsibilities responsibilities and jockeying for position and where your loyalties in the end really lie uh, and all these things are meshed together very very effectively it doesn't come to a thriller style climax. It doesn't grab the audience in a kind of Chabrol or Hitchcock way, although it resembles a Chabrol film in some ways. It, it's much more contemplative and meditative. It uh, kind of concludes in a kind of minor key. But I, I, I really can't sell this to you enough. I think it's an absolutely brilliant film. It's a great sense of Russia as well, mm. and this sort of modern Moscow, modern yes. moneyed Moscow, and then the the yes. Soviet estates that, yes, that lie so out in the kind of scrublands. So yes, these old school Soviet estates, which are kind of out there in this sort of grim urban pastoral. Uh, and he, uh, Vladimir, lives in this very, very luxury apartment, this absolutely pristine apartment, which he's very, very uh, keen on. And his wife, Elena, is very house proud. And she sees it as a very important part of her conjugal duties in keeping it absolutely just so. And she always has the TV on tuned to some lifestyle TV show. It's great. And the idea of Elena's waster, feckless son and his brood invading this beautiful space is absolutely intolerable. Uh, and it's, it's really powerful. Peter is saying that he can't sell it to us enough, but, but who's going to buy a film like this in, in the week of Bond? It's very good counter-programming, isn't it? I mean, all the films we're coming on to review now are incredibly good. I mean, especially compared to, say, next week, when you've got The Master versus Rust and Bone, two very sort of um, similar targeted films peculiarly opening on the same week. Практически все получится, 
the dank and chilly Elena there. Now, when Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror film The Shining first came out, it was widely seen to have fallen between two stools. It was too trashy for the Kubrick buffs and too arty for the traditional horror crowd. But that's changed in the intervening three decades, and the documentary Room 237 probes endlessly at the mystery. If you thought The Shining was a simple horror film about a man who goes mad in a remote mountain hotel, think again. The Shining is actually Kubrick's parable of the Holocaust, or a film about the genocide of the Native American, or his veiled apology for helping NASA fake the moon landings way back in 1969. All of these theories and more lie in wait inside forbidden, creepy room 237. Catherine, there's some pretty uh, lurid and convoluted theories coming out of this film. Were there any particularly that you, you bought? I think that's the problem. You buy all of them one after the other and, and think it must be the most extraordinary film because all this must be true now. Uh, the moon landings, the aliens, the Holocaust, all of it. Uh, all the carpet stuff is incredible. Um, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I thought it was very interesting that you didn't ever see the people. Uh, you just heard their voices because probably the sight of them would discredit their theories pretty instantly. I wonder if it would, though, because one of them is a, a senior correspondent at ABC News, the other's a professor of history. I mean, these aren't drooling people at the bus stops screaming about, you know, Satan. No, probably not. But, I, you know, I think anybody can look bananas um, in the right circumstance. Uh, no, I, I, do think, I do think the visual sort of, you know, because you've not just got not the sight of them. You've got their theories being explained on screen, mm -hmm. frame by frame by frame, and with meticulous diagrams. Which you know, it's like a PowerPoint presentation, and it, and it's wonderful for that. And it's it's like the very best bits of doing a kind of close reading English mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it, I loved it. I yeah. love the bit where at the end they play the film forward and backwards, mm -hmm. so it's almost talking to to itself. Mm -hmm. Peter, there's there's this argument that if if a hack director makes a continuity error, it's just a continuity error. Yes. But when Kubrick does it, it's, it's this masterstroke. Who knows? I mean, what I thought was sort of brilliant about it is that it, it raised the question, how often should you view a film before you really have seen it at all? You see, all of us who are professional film writers, we might see a film like this. We might see it two or three or four or five times. These are people who've seen it two or three or four or five hundred times, and instantly that fact seems to put them out of the running as respectable viewers of films. They're like people who go and see Mamma Mia over and over again. And yet maybe they are the only people who have seen everything Kubrick wanted us to see. They are the only people. I mean, the production designer, the art director, they have meticulously placed everything there. And maybe it is these obsessive fans who really have achieved a level of familiarity with the film which approximate, approximates that of the actual creator itself. And it's so great because it's Kubrick. I mean, you could say, well, you could do this with any film. Watch no, it over and over again. No. But, but the great thing about this, and particularly The Shining, because as you say, it straddles two kind of stools, it's partly horror, it's partly arty, it's sort of muddled in, there are lots of things going on in it. It's just, uh, and of course you know that, we know that Kubrick was such a detail obsessive, yes. and so the idea Everything that, is there. The idea that something could work subliminally on you, mm. and you realise, no, I didn't see that. You're right, I didn't see that. And it was only if I watched it 157 times that I really would see it. I love the bit at the, when the, um, that theory that guy has about how 
the in the opening credits you going out to the Overlook Hotel and the clouds apparently yeah. went to form Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yes, and yes. I looked I again looked, and again. I was so waiting for it. I was going to say, I'm ready to see it. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of smiley face. We started the show with the all-powerful, all-conquering James Bond film Skyfall, so it seems fitting to end with the smallest release of the bunch. It's from 1947, it's reissued, it's the British classic, It Always Rains on Sunday. Any errand you want done, Dad? What do you want to know? I want to earn another two shillings to buy a mouth organ with. You think I'm made of money? Out of the ashes of post-war London comes the Ealing drama It Always Rains on Sunday. Googie Withers stars as the redoubtable barmaid who has her hands full with a former lover, out of jail and on the lam, and raising merry hell in the attics and Anderson shelters of 1940s Bethnal Green. Nice way to spend a Sunday morning. Peter, it always rains on Sundays. is sort of seen as a precursor to kitchen sink realism. Yes, it is. It is pretty kitchen sink, although in some ways it's less parochial than kitchen sink. What's interesting about the East End of London, as it's seen in this movie, is that it's very, very candid about Judaism and people speaking in Yiddish uh, and those, those sorts of things, which you, you, that's the kind of thing you don't get in the later, uh, avowedly more political kitchen sink movies. That, that aspect of England and Anglo-Saxon culture seems to have gone. Whereas this film, interestingly, is much more candid about that. Uh, and it's a very ambitious film with a real sense of ensemble. Uh, it's made with enormous flair and verve. Uh, and it brings in a massive uh, street scene, which uh, looked like Marcel Carnet to me. It was absolutely done terrifically well. This was made just two years before Kind Hearts and Coronets, mm. before Hamer's sort of masterpiece. But it's still to, um, brought off with incredible dash. Uh, and it's, it's, it's rather exhilarating, despite that, despite that fantastically miserable title. I mean, you just think, oh, do, <laughs> I, a parody, do I really want to watch a film called It Always Rains on it's Sunday? It's the first of a franchise they went yeah, through the week. Yeah, the, oh, it's perking up on Tuesday. <laughs> uh, you know, as I say, that's a sort of, it sounds miserableist, whereas in, in a way that's something much more melodramatic and sensational, that, that it, it cuts through the rainy, miserable imprisonedness of a British Sunday and gives you an escaped convict in your Anderson shelter in the garden. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant, it's incredible exciting. Catherine, Peter and I obviously can remember these days very well. We were you know, quite small, but we were around. <laughs> but it must be like looking at a different world for you. Yes, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. <laughs> but it actually, it, it is quite exotic. It does feel like, it feels very notably, say, uh, you know, a good decade earlier than, than say, Woman in Dressing Gown or something like that, mm. a issue like that. It feels absolutely amazing. It feels completely unstifling for, for a sort of precursor to kitchen sink. And it has this bracingly horrible heroine a bit like woman in dressing gown so she's just so ghastly and you don't at the first in the first few scenes imagine that she will turn out to be the heroine it's just wonderful i love that bit where she's um just being such a bitch to them all and then she says um you're gonna get in the way of my mending <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous, and this is the romantic heroine. Yes, it's, it's it's fantastic, but you can just see how she's become that way. She's stifled that part of herself that she was once in love with Tommy Swan, the kind of. <laughs> 
dodgy Larry Tearaway, who is uh, always showing up at the Three Compasses, yeah. and uh, <laughs> she's kind of flirting with him and has this wonderful kind of picnic, sort of cuts mm. to this fantastically English picnic that they're having. Quite, quite innocent, not, not very sexual. He's always going upstairs, <laughs> this thing, he's always going upstairs for a nap. It doesn't occur <laughs> to them to go upstairs and have sex. He's, you know, he's knackered after being on the run from Dartmoor. He's made it down to the East End from Dartmoor, so he really must be exhausted. <laughs> But it's, it's great, it's very, very watchable. It's all right. It's me. Tommy. That's the end of our rambling history lesson from the week. A history lesson that has taken us from poverty, post-war Britain, through the moon landings, all the way to present-day Bond. My thanks as ever to Catherine Short and Peter Bradshaw. I'm actually off next week, but Peter and Catherine will be here on the sofa. Hope you can join them. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. For a limited period only, we have an exclusive ebook offer for Guardian podcast listeners. Guardian columnist Luke Harding's Mafia State is a dark and ominous insight into the life of a journalist in present-day Russia. We're offering 30% off the list price of 4 dollars all you have to do is go to the ebook store www.kobo.com. That's kobo.com. And at checkout, put in the discount code MAFIASTATE for your Guardian podcast offer.